Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. And this is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things that used to be known as the global war on terror and what we call the long war. Of course, I'm joined today by my co-host, friend, and co-editor at FDD's Long War Journal, Caleb Weiss. Caleb is a senior analyst at uh, the Bridgeway Foundation. Um, and today we are going to discuss the coup in Niger. Um, may seem a little bit off topic for us, but it isn't. There's a lot related to the jihadist movement. And today we are very happy to be joined by uh, James Barnett. He's a research fellow at the Hudson, Hudson Institute, where he studies conflict, terrorism, and geopolitics in Africa. James has worked James has worked extensively across the continent and beyond, particularly in West Africa, where James was previously based. James today, James is here to guide us through the complexities of the current situation in Niger, where yet another Sahelian coup has shocked the region and much of the Western security world. The government in Niger, a longtime security partner for both France and the United States, now joins the likes of Mali, Chad, and Burkina Faso as the Sahelian states under military rule. However, as France and by association, its allies were forced to leave both Mali and Burkina Faso by those states ruling yuntas, Niger has become the linchpin of West of the West security strategy in the Sahel. Niger co- currently hosts two major U.S. air bases that are used to support counterterrorism operations in the region. And now this is all in flux due to the rapidly changing environment. James, uh, again, it's a pleasure to have you on. Welcome to Generation Jihad. Thanks so much, Bill. Thanks, Caleb. Yeah, absolutely, man. I, I think we should just jump right into this. I, yeah, I think, you know, it. just for the listeners who, I mean, they're definitely more than aware of the, the jihadist environment and, you know, the surging and jihadist violence in the Sahel, but probably not too familiar with the internal politics of the region. So, James, if we could start with, you know, how did we get here in the first place? Yeah, thanks, Caleb. Um, so I think if you kind of you know, a lot of this uh, goes back to around uh, 2020, I'd say, when Mali experienced its first coup. The, um, you know, the the civilian president of that country was deposed by his own military officers, um, which was followed then by a, a second coup in Mali in 2021, and then two coups in Burkina Faso in 2022. And so kind of the period of, of 2020 until kind of really the the start of this year in the Sahel had seen um, two of the countries that had previously been a big uh, both an epicenter of this kind of uh, jihadist terrorism problem that that you guys obviously have been tracking uh, very closely, but also in, in the case of Mali, especially, it had been the the epicenter of a very international response. You had, um, you know, a United Nations mission in in the form of MINUSMA, but you also had, um, you know, a successive European uh, counterterrorism efforts in the in the country dating to the French Operation Serval in 2013. And so many of these uh, kind of counterterrorism missions in the region of France was really kind of the driving force. The U.S. was playing more of kind of a behind the scenes role with ISR and air support and, or, or logistic, you know, airlift and stuff. But the French were very much kind of the public face of, of the, these, these counterterrorism um, efforts in the region. And of course, these are Francophone West African countries. These are former French colonies. Uh, the French have a, a long kind of history of, of what's uh, dubbed France-Afrique, meaning this kind of uh, neo-colonial approach to the region that's often been very kind of controversial uh, of, you know, the French backing certain strongmen, uh, kind of intervening in, in, in their former colonies and stuff. 
And I, I bring all that up, not to say that the situation we're in is, is entirely the fault of the French or anything like that. Um, I think as, as you guys have tracked that long war journal, the, you know, Operation Barkhane and, and the, uh, you know, the French counterterrorism efforts were, you know, uh, a factor kind of a check on the jihadist expansion, if not a full one, that they were kind of, you know, serving uh, some sort of purpose. <clears throat> but I bring this up because it's very important to kind of connect between the kind of international and the the national uh, or the regional dimensions. And I think that there there is an interplay here. These are, you know, these states in the Sahel are ones that have been pretty weak and have pretty weak legitimacy. Um, this includes kind of under the uh, uh, former civilian regimes in these countries, the civilian administrations, um, and also I would argue uh, presently under the um, under the the military juntas in these different countries. And so these were countries that were kind of getting flooded with um, a lot of kind of security assistance. They're they're very brittle states that were being asked to do quite a lot in terms of the, uh, you know, kind of shouldering a counterterrorism uh, approach in the case of Niger. Um, you know, the that country also became the locus of, a, of counter-migration efforts from the Europeans. And so there was kind of, I think, a, a growing sense that these, uh, there, there were growing frustrations both within the militaries in these countries and to some extent within the public. Though I think we do need to distinguish between what happened in Mali and Burkina and what's happening in Niger where the junta in Niger does not seem at this point to have quite as much popular support as in the uh, other two countries, although that that could change. Um, and so essentially, you know, you, you have this kind of vicious cycle at play where starting in Mali and then uh, in Burkina, um, there's also the coup in Guinea that we can talk about and, and the kind of pseudo coup in Chad. But I think Mali and Burkina are maybe the most illustrative of these purposes. You have kind of military officers in a society that's becoming, you know, that's always been militarized. These are societies that have had histories of, of coups in the past. Um, but now it's, you know, these are countries that are being heavily militarized with kind of Western support and stuff. These these officers get this, they get this frustration. They feel that the civilian elites are benefiting more from this kind of militarization of, of society and the economy than they, the people actually fighting the wars. They have a sense that maybe they can manage things better. They they have uh, personal resentments in, in each of these cases, and, and I think very much in the case of Niger against the civilian, the democratically elected uh, presidents. And so you have these Sahelian officers kind of thinking that they're going to be able to uh, perform better and to benefit more from the kind of the, the, the political economy of violence, the security situation, you know, the, the insecurity in some ways. They think that they will benefit more from that and they will, at least they claim, be able to handle it better than the civilian officials if they overthrow them. Now, what we saw in Mali and Burkina, of course, was that, you know, this is very much not the case, that uh, jihadist violence escalated. You know, the, the it was already trending in that way in both countries. I think it is important to recognize that. But uh, certainly the, the regimes, the juntas that came to power in Mali and Burkina, uh, were you know have 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 employed approaches that have been you know highly counterproductive um, and kind of exacerbating the intercommunal conflicts and tensions that really drive a lot of communities into the arms of jihadists. Um, you know Niger is is interesting and, and troubling insofar as um, Niger had really become kind of the the locus of the kind of Western counterterrorism approach uh, in the region, especially following the uh, decision by the Malian junta to kick out um you know uh, to to kick out the french forces they also said that minusma 
the UN mission should draw down. The, the Burkinabe junta also said the French uh, are no longer welcome to conduct operations. And so at, at the same time that those countries were were you know expelling Western forces and also turning to some extent to the Russians, uh, more so in the case of Mali than Burkina, which has kind of tried to play both sides. And we can talk a bit about Russia and Wagner later. Um, but at the same time they were doing that, Niger had a democratically, a genuinely democratically elected president, certainly not without his flaws and not without some very prominent critics. He he did uh, made some controversial decisions, you know, the kind of uh, about stifling civil society, but he had been a democratically elected president and he was very much, you know, fully aligning with the U.S., with France, with Germany, the Europeans saying, you know, Niger, you guys can no longer operate in Mali and Burkina. That's a lost cause. But there are several things that are different about Niger that make us kind of a good spot for your regional counterterrorism efforts that make us an indisputable partner. You know, one of those regions is that a lot of the jihadist violence in Niger is not as homegrown. Like to some extent, it is more uh, spillover than maybe in Mali, where you have the real kind of, um, and I think what we're seeing in Burkina with uh, there, there's very much a, a homegrown element um, after the Ansar al-Islam, you know, in the mid 2010s. Um, and, and but also a lot of it came down to strategy. And Bazoum, you know, to his credit, was a, you know one of the problems that you have both in counterterrorism uh, in this part of the world, but also just counterinsurgency in general and general security practices, even kind of policing, is that it tends to be you know very kind of indiscriminate, heavy-handed, militarized, uh, kind of you know beating wide with a big stick. Um, you see this even in, in kind of the way that, you know, police officers in Lagos, where I've been, you know, living the past few years, Nigeria, how they, you know, uh, will, will, will punish people for, you know, they'll beat people just for basic kind of traffic infractions. There's a whole colonial history here we could, we could go into. But, you know, it's generally kind of, it's the easy approach for military regimes that kind of lack, uh, lack much credibility, that lack lots of resources. Uh, military regimes, as, as I've argued, this was actually a big focus of my master's research in West Africa. Military regimes, uh, the problem is that they become very interested in the political side of, uh, you know, being a regime. And so they lose focus on the battlefield. And so they kind of reach for this heavy stick because it's the first tool available for them. So this is what Mali and Burkina had been doing. And of course, it, it was very counterproductive. Niger had been a, 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 a using and applying a more kind of calibrated approach involving some DDR, involving some dialogue with some of the communities that were, um, you know, uh, affected by jihadist violence. Of course, they were still, you know, also conducting, um, you know, they were they were conducting uh, uh, military operations. Um, you know, you had a National Guard uh, being set up to kind of as a paramilitary force to support the, these counterinsurgency efforts. But so that's, you know, the that I think is one of the reasons why um, a lot of Western analysts are very concerned about what's happening in Niger now, as opposed to say what happened earlier in Burkina Faso, which you know no one welcomed, but it was easier to write that off. I think the question is, and and obviously the other big you know elephant in the room here is that there are two as as part of this uh, security assistance and stuff and these close relations between the West and Niger, there are two U.S. military bases in the country, right, um, totaling about a thousand or a thousand one hundred troops. So that's kind of the the general overview, and uh, happy to go more into detail on any one element. No, that was that was fantastic, man. I think you hit all the main points for for setting the scene of how we got here. So I think, you know, what's best is we move to what's currently happening, and yeah. you know, starting there, if we could talk a little bit about who are the major players right now in Niger, you know, who actually mm -hmm. did the, what are they calling themselves, what are they saying, 
Um, and just, you know, to, to tee that off, you know, I know that the, the, the new junta in Niger is, you know, also using the line that Mali and Burkina Faso did of that we're doing this for security. But what's interesting is, you know, as you kind of alluded to, is that jihadist violence in Niger was kind of on, you know, the downturn over the last couple of years. So it's totally not the same as Mali and Burkina Faso, but yet we're still using that line. So if you can explain, you know, sort of why they're saying that, what, what else are they saying and who they are, that would be fantastic. Yeah, thanks, Caleb. I mean, to speak in broad strokes and, and you know, my, my my caveat here is that I think that the there's, well, there's a tremendous amount of kind of rumor swirling around and I've not spent as much time in kind of the Nigerian information space as, as kind of Nigeria, which has been my main focus. So I'll try to, I'll try to be conservative and saying kind of what we do and what we don't know. The initial reports after, uh, kind of in, in the aftermath of the coup suggested that, and, and kind of even on the day of, this looked more like a mutiny turned coup at the time. Uh, I think in contrast to what we'd seen earlier in Mali and Burkina Faso, it had been rumored for a while that uh, President Bazoum was looking to uh, kind of downgrade the influence of his own presidential guard and even possibly uh, remove the commander of that, a man named General Tiani. And so the presidential guard is one of the the kind of traditional, traditionally the most prestigious units in Niger's, uh, in kind of the Nigerian security sector. They'd been involved in some uh, you know, uh, putches and uh, unprofessional behavior in the past. So they're kind of truly a praetorian force. But the the Nigerian security sector has expanded a lot since, uh, you know, since say 2011. Um, there's this, um, uh, the number that actually a lot of Nigerians who are kind of supportive of this possible Nigerian intervention into Niger, which again, I'm sure we'll talk about a, a bit later, but, you know, people are throwing around, oh, the Nigerians just have 11,000 soldiers. And actually, the, the more accurate and, and recent estimates that I've heard is it's it's upwards of 40,000, right? So the country's military and security sector has expanded a lot. Um, this is, again, a relatively small country population-wise. So the presidential guard was kind of feeling some of the pressure. There were other actors rising within the security sector, which itself had always been very fragmented historically. And so the, you know, President Bazoum uh, effectively didn't really trust these guys. And a lot of the prestige was going to some of these counterterrorism units trained by the U.S. or trained by the French, these, these special operations forces that were much more on the front lines uh, doing the actually you know, at the forefront of, of combating the, the terrorist threat. So kind of the, the, the irony of that is the elite units were the ones out in the field actually doing the fighting. It means that the units in Yame, aka the presidential guard, are the ones that you know have the political aspirations and also have the ability to pull off a coup. So the the question and uh, kind of on the first day it was this question of is this just a mutiny or are they really trying to you know overthrow Bazoum? Right? They surrounded his office. They they locked him in there. Are they just coming in with some demands? Or are they actually deposing him? You know, by the end of the you know the first day, it seemed. Uh, and, and I would say also that that was kind of right. The best time to try to reverse a coup was when we don't even know if it's a coup, right? Those those early hours are crucial. And the real question there was going to be: Will the presidential guard have the support of um, you know other other elements of the security sector, um, other elements of the military, or are they going to side with Bazoum? And and the reports are you know we're getting was that it was kind of a bit of it was a bit of both. Some units were signaling support for Bazoum, others weren't. But by the end of the evening. They, they had kind of, um, you know, it had become clear that the, the presidential guard had achieved enough consensus within other elements of the military to form, you know, this junta, right? So they have this junta with this, you know, very uh, kind of unimaginative name, you know, the the 
National Salvation Patriotic Front, you know, CNSP. Um, it's actually the same acronym as uh, the Junta in Burkina Faso. So these guys are not the most uh, maybe intellectually or ideologically um you know, engaged, right? And and that might, in, in fact, uh, support the theory that this was more of kind of an unplanned mutiny or, or it was planned as a mutiny and then transformed into a coup. The question, though, you know, there are now reports saying that, well, there actually some of the presidential guard were in touch with the junta in, in Mali before the coup happened. Um, what we've seen in the past few days is that Mali and Burkina Faso have lent a strong rhetorical support for the putschists, they've even pledged kind of indirectly or implied that they would come to Niger's defense if there was a intervention by the regional body ECOWAS, though we can discuss what, what if anything, that might actually look like. But, um, you know, so it is, it, it is clear that there's kind of, at least politically, in terms of the political orientation, there is kind of an anti-ECOWAS pro-coup block emerging with these three juntas. Um, you know, I'm not in a, uh, I, I haven't really had the time to look into this and I, I wouldn't be the best person to kind of judge um, to what extent there might have been some kind of pre-planning of this. But, uh, you know, I, I think to get back to that original point, because um, maybe this leads us into the next question of, of what happens from here, the, you know, the best time to reverse the coup is when you don't know if it's a coup yet. And, and I think that the the, the rhetoric from ECOWAS from the U.S. right now for political reasons, diplomatic reasons, for a variety of reasons, some of which I think are valid, are not yet calling this a coup. But this, you know, we're now at day, what, uh, it's been one week, uh, eight days, I think. This is, I'm losing track of time. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, each day this goes on, it becomes a more complex issue. Uh, and unfortunately, the options now aren't aren't ideal. Right. I mean, let's let's talk a little bit, bit about, about that. Like, what exactly is ECOWAS saying? What is the U.S. saying? What is the French saying? Uh, and, and sort of what are they doing to try to mitigate this? Yeah, thanks. So, you know, starting, I guess we can say in the first days after the coup, I think a lot of observers were expecting a very a feeble response, a very weak response, because that is what the U.S., the French, um, the uh, ECOWAS had kind of uh, how they had reacted to previous coups in Mali and Burkina Faso, also in Guinea. Um, you know, there's the whole point in Chad, which was not quite a coup, but it was a transition from one military regime to another. And, you know, the for for strategic interests, the, the U.S. and particularly the French were were not exactly condemning that um, forcefully. The French were, you know, really quite cozy with Chad. So I think that a lot of the the expectation was that you'd have a bit of rhetoric, um, and then you know this whole thing would fizzle out um, because also the U.S. has these very strong, you know, compared to the other neighboring countries, the U.S. has pretty strong security interests in Niger. Um, we have these two military bases. The you know they're. The, immediately this debate started in Washington and it's still ongoing now within the government and elsewhere about, you know, whether the State Department should officially label this as a coup. Um, there are kind of two reasons, I think, that they have held out so far. And so if you read uh, Secretary Blinken's statements, he's still referring to the ongoing detention of, of President Bazoum and the need to return, restore constitutional order. Although his his the statement last night was actually a bit more vague than the previous ones, which maybe indicates that they're coming to grips with uh, the the reality of the situation about whether Bazoom can really be reinstated. 
But anyway, the the reason that the U.S. has kind of avoided that use that use of the term coup is is I think twofold. First is it's it's diplomatic and it's political about the question of the junta itself and the official position from the U.S. and also from ECOWAS. And there is some you know uh, um, uh, alignment here is that it's not too late for the putschists to back down. That you know our demands are still that President Bazoum be re- or like that he resume his duties even. So we're not recognizing that this coup has even succeeded. We just see that it's like in process because we see that there's opposition to it within Niger. We see that there's opposition to it within the region. So, you know, this is your chance to back down. You haven't actually succeeded yet, right? So they're kind of partially, I think it's to try to to send that message, that signal to the junta, whether or not they believe that is another matter. The the other question is, is this... uh, uh, the the section seven zero zero eight, which would require the you know this U.S. law that would require the United States to end security assistance, direct security assistance to the Nigerian military if they're involved in a coup. Um, now there is a, a waiver that they could uh, potentially invoke that might be very politically controversial. So what I you know the sense I get now is that maybe different parts of the U.S. government are having different debates about what the approach would be. But that is, that also hangs over the question of is this a coup or not? Now, if the, does the U.S. actually have a larger strategy here? That I think uh, I'm, it's not so clear at the moment. You know, I've talked to a couple people in government and, and gotten somewhat conflicting answers. One thing that has become clear though is that there is uh, there was some surprise and even some concern about the reaction of of ECOWAS, the regional body. So to go back, as I said earlier, in the past, ECOWAS has been very tepid in the response to these coups. And in the first few days after the coup was getting the, we were getting the same impression, right? They, the Tanubu, so President, Nigerian President Bola Tanubu, newly inaugurated Nigerian president, and also now just in his third week as the rotating chair, uh, chairman of ECOWAS, he was very quick to uh, condemn the coup, but you know, a condemnation is easy, right? We were waiting to see, okay, is there going to be the usual raft of sanctions? What might those look like? Will they be a bit harsher? Um, some people, you know, on social media and stuff were calling for uh, you know, the Gambia option, which is a reference to 2017 when ECOWAS authorized a kind of multinational force, but largely a Nigerian force, to march into the Gambia to uh, you know, depose the former president dictator who was overstaying his term in office and to hand over power to the guy who had just won the elections. And it was it was a success. Um, you know, hardly a shot was fired. So initially, it didn't seem like that option might be on the table. And then kind of things started to shift Saturday night, Sunday morning. And all of a sudden at this, um, uh, you know, that's West Africa time, uh, went at this emergency de- uh, summit that ECOWAS held in Abuja, the Nigerian capital on July 30th, that was last Sunday, um, ECOWAS issued a, an ultimatum. They said the junta has seven days to restore constitutional order, to restore President Bazoum to office, or in addition to the sanctions that we're imposing now on day one, you know, pretty harsh economic sanctions, you know, the junta will consider all options, including military force. And then the, the, the sorry, ECOWAS will consider all options, including military force. And, and to that effect, the, the, the defense chiefs of the different West African nations have met to uh, kind of discuss in broad terms the situation in, in Niger. So this has raised the prospect of an armed intervention into Niger. And the concern is that Niger is not Gambia. It's uh, bigger, it's stronger, it has a you know, larger military. 
Um, there's obviously the jihadist problem, right? You didn't have like two active jihadist insurgencies uh, in the Gambia. Um, and there does, you know, there's a question now of how much popular support the junta might have. But I think it's safe to assume that whatever support they have now, they would likely be able to increase it at least somewhat in the in the event of an armed invasion. This kind of they'd have this rally around the flag effect. Um, you know, there's there's a fear that they would even I think my concern has been that they would uh, potentially arm civilian militias, which would lead, you know, the ECOWAS militaries, which would principally be Nigeria to be kind of bogged down in, in a counterinsurgency. And what we've seen in that part of the region is that counterinsurgencies are very ugly affairs. So now there's this prospect of armed intervention. And I think that the, you know, the, I can't speak for the US government. They've not really said anything publicly about the armed intervention. I think they don't want to undercut ECOWAS, but talking to different analysts inside and outside of government, I think that there's, there's some concern about, you know, would would ECOWAS be able to pull off a swift and quick and effective military intervention, or is this going to turn into something really nasty? And so that's where now I think the next few days are really going to be crucial. Um, uh, as I, you know, in terms of ECOWAS's own reasoning, I think that they have the ECOWAS member states have their own reasons for wanting to take a very hard line against this coup. I think for Tanubu, it's partially personal, partially political. Um, you know, he was himself kind of jump started his career as a a uh, democracy activist in exile. So he sees himself, he's he's very much against military rule. He doesn't have any former military officers in his cabinet, which is a big departure from his predecessors. Um, and he also has, I think, this kind of, you know, he's facing a lot of political challenges. A lot of Nigerians, uh, you know, believe that he didn't win, you know, that the, the uh, February 2023 elections that brought him to power were not credible because of some of the, the, the vote manipulation and, and rigging that happened in a few areas. So I think that you know, he has his own kind of reasons for wanting to do this. The other coastal West African states, likewise, these are countries that have their own histories of coups. Uh, they're they're also facing a number of these countries, you know, Benin, Togo, possibly Ghana, um, you know, possibly Ivory Coast facing, and, and now Senegal as well, facing jihadist expansion kind of at the borders. And so there's a fear that if that jihadist expansion puts more pressure on the security sector, uh, you know, the security sectors in, in, in those countries might turn against their civilian heads of state and you'd have this so-called coup contagion. So I think that ECOWAS has its its kind of own strong reasons, different reasons for wanting to do this. Um, so it's a question of kind of what, if anything, is going to, uh, you know, get both sides, both the junta and ECOWAS off the brink um, of, of a regional war. And I think that's where we'll need to see kind of how these back channel negotiations uh, over the next few days play out. Um, you asked about France. Honestly, I'm I'm not in a great position for that. I think that, you know, historically, Nigeria has not had very good relations with France. And so I, I'm, I've been very skeptical that the French would be kind of pushing, that Nigeria would be, you know, wanting to do an intervention on France's behalf. Tanubu does have, you know, stronger relations with the French than his uh, predecessor. But, you know, I've seen no, I've seen no evidence that the French are kind of a driving force behind the ECOWAS policy. I think to to just assume as much without evidence is kind of gets into the same level of speculation that we see, you know, a lot of, uh, frankly, American and European analysts say about the Wagner group that anytime there's a coup in Africa, it must be the Wagner group. So I think for now, uh, it's important Better, to look at. You know, it's all the U.S. fault because they trained the officers who did it. Yeah, right. Or, That's the other now in, now in Niger, you're getting the, it's all about the uranium Takes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. 
So yeah, it's um I think that the the echo the internal ECOWAS dynamics are often overlooked. Even if it's a combination of those internal dynamics plus some external stuff, I think we we really need to appreciate why the region is kind of reacting, would would have good reason to react differently to this coup than the other ones. Um Right, which I, I mean, I think you answered pretty much, the, you know, the next logical questions of sort of where do we go from here and sort of, yeah. you know, what are the other states saying, you know, you mentioned on Twitter, and I think a few other places, this idea of, of coup contagion, which mm-hmm. I, I think you were talking about with, you know, Benin and Togo and sort of what the littoral states are doing, who, you know, as jihadist violence is also coming down, and their their governments are also not necessarily stable, but have to deal with you know that idea themselves. And you know, Sierra Leone also said that they thwarted a coup, which right. may or may not be true. Um, but, you know, to talk more about, you know, sort of what happens next, you know, let's say that, you know, long term, this does affect, you know, the the U.S., you know, stature there. You know, what does that do for, for U.S., you know, military footprint in Niger? Do they, are they able to really, you know, do anything against the jihadi insurgency there? Like what, what happens next, you know, broad scale. Yeah. I mean, so I think we're at a position where, you know, the hope is that this threat of military intervention will kind of lead the junta to take a step back and to, you know, to take negotiations seriously. I think that that's where I hold out, you know, to the extent that I think that there's hope to kind of defuse the situation, it's there. I think a regional war would be disastrous for everyone. I don't think the junta can put up a, a a serious kind of defense of itself as a government. I think that they would probably collapse relatively quickly, but that this would morph into some sort of very nasty counterinsurgency or kind of civil war that I, I don't think anyone wants. The, you know, ECOWAS with the the Nigerians kind of, um, you know, playing the lead here have have dispatched some some teams to, to Nyanem. My understanding is that some will be here today. Um, to, to negotiate. And what I, you know, my kind of view on this has been that the Nigerians are actually in the best position, even as they kind of threaten the heaviest stick, they're also in the best position to try to convince the junta to step down, not only because they're they're wagging that big stick and, you know, military guys in, in, in Niger appreciate, you know, the threat of force more than, than just sanctions, but also because the Nigerians have the most credibility to speak to the kind of debilitating effects that military rule will have on a nation, but also on a military. Because that was the history of Nigeria from 1966 to 1999, was that you know the Nigerian military itself really became a shell of its former self and, and lost its prestige and lost its uh, you know capacity to, to handle even basic security challenges. And so eventually you, you had you know, a Nigerian military ruler who kind of power fell in his lap when the the previous military ruler unexpectedly died and he said look you know i can hold on to this because i'm a general but this is just going to hurt it's going to hurt the nation and it's going to hurt the military that i you know signed up for as a young man with some ideals and thankfully that man you know general abdusalami abubakar has been the one is the one being dispatched to niger so i'm you know hopeful to the extent that i'm hopeful it's that in the next couple of days the Nigerians and, and ECOWAS, you know, a combination of the pressure and the clever dialogue will be able to produce some sort of, you know, the junta stepping back. I think at this point, it's very unlikely that they would reinstate President Bazoum. And I think that even if they did, that would create a whole host of challenges in and of itself, unfortunately. Um, you know, Bazoum was, 
to the extent that I, you know, I can, I can gauge this. He was relatively popular, um, you know, or at least not as unpopular as the civilian governments in, say, Mali and Burkina before they fell. So he was relatively popular, but definitely had his his critics, you know, some prominent critics in the country. If he were kind of uh, brought back to power, especially with an ECOWAS armed intervention, that would do a tremendous amount of damage to his credibility domestically. Even if he's brought back to power via negotiations kind of immediately, you know, I think the first thing he would do is try to fire the presidential or maybe not fire him this time, but like, you know, have his tea poisoned or something, right? Because there's no way that you just go back into the same security sector that just toppled you and say, okay, you know, kumbaya now, we're all friends. So, and and the junta knows that. They know that, you know, their, their, their back is against the wall. So I think that unfortunately what we might see is more of a kind of uh, a negotiated compromise transition that's not going to leave anyone fully happy but you know might might hopefully kind of avert the the chaos of, of a broader regional war or or a kind of a hard you know a junta that that makes a hard break with the west and and turns to to russia and turns to counterproductive counterinsurgency practices on the us question you know one of the things that that distinguishes uh the policy debate i think between what's happening now in Niger and say what happened in, in Mali, Burkina, Guinea, in all of those countries, the U.S. had some forms of security assistance, but we didn't have 1,000 U.S. troops. And so AFRICOM, you know, the, the Pentagon, but specifically U.S. Africa Command, has a much bigger say, I think, is going to have a much bigger say in these kind of interagency deliberations over how to respond to the coup than it has in previous ones, because it's not just going to be a question of, you know, uh, do we continue, you know, providing train and equip to Nigerian forces? It's also like, well, do we maintain these bases in Niger? Because if you're completely cutting off military assistance to Niger and the Nigerians decide to turn to, you know, uh, Mali and the Wagner group and stuff, but then you're also going to have these two U.S. bases there, like, that's probably not going to work, right? The Nigerians will say, you guys got to leave, like the Malians said to the French. So it's, you know, I, I think it's it's tough. A lot will kind of come down to the next few days and how successful the ECOWAS mediation is, um, because if they can kind of salvage something like a transitional government or, or what have you, then I think that the it becomes a bit easier for the U.S. government to not have to change the status quo too much. Um, I mean, I think for the moment, like train and equip and all that stuff has already paused. You know, U.S. forces have been returned to the bases and Agadez, you know, they're they're not leaving the confines of the bases. So at the moment, there's no, you know, robust security assistance happening. Just that formally, legally, these programs haven't been cut yet because the, the State Department has not made that call on whether or not it's a coup. So, yeah, I mean, I think the U.S. government would like for this to be resolved amicably via negotiations in the next few days, because that would, you know, present it with the the easier options. Whereas if if this turns into a regional war, then there's a debate about, you know, what's the U.S. policy to that. I I don't think the U.S. should be supporting that. I think that that would be a very bad look uh, for everyone. And um, you know, there's also the question of uh, uh, maybe there's no regional war, but maybe the juntas, you know, maybe they just call everyone's bluff and and they kind of stay in power and they pivot, like I said, to, you know, kind of consolidating this trifecta of, you know, juntas in Mali, Burkina, Niger, and they're a bit closer with Russia and, and, and Wagner and China. And then that, you know, that doesn't leave many good options for the U.S. So 
you know, these next few days will really be critical. I, I'm sure that sounds a bit banal by this point, but uh, it is. I mean, we're, we're witnessing history. Yeah, yeah, probably the best answer you can give. Um, yeah, you know, and I think you know we don't have to spend too much time on this. I just think that you know, with how much of a buzzword Wagner is, especially yeah. in DC, we should probably spend a little bit of time on that, especially discussing you know, in Mali and Burkina Faso, you know, when those coups happened, there was already pro-Russian rhetoric. Uh, yeah. Especially in the you know subsequent civilian protests that happened, there was you know sizable pro-Russian influence within those at least you know people waving Russian flags, people you know chanting about Russia. It hasn't really seen that here in Niger. It doesn't seem to be the similar case, but yet people are still bringing up Wagner. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Bill and I have been pretty skeptical about Wagner's overall reach in the Sahel. But you know, what is your take on this? Do they even have an entryway here? Is this even something that they could even do? Or, you know, what is your take on Wagner uh, in, in, in the, the Nigerian context? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's obviously it's a it's a, a topic that's kind of generating a lot of conversation without there being much kind of substance, <laughs> much hard evidence one way or the other. I think, um, you know, definitely. There is a certain type of kind of, uh, you know, quote unquote analysis or, or just kind of rhetoric commentary that's very popular in D.C. And, and Europe these days because of the war in Ukraine and everything, of course, that, you know, looks to whatever's happening in Africa as, as a possible, you know, either orchestrated by Wagner or, you know, the, the next, you know, guaranteed to be the next uh, Wagner success story. I think, you know, the Nigerians are are, are clever about this. They know uh that if you wave some Russian flags at the anti-French pro-coup demonstration, that it'll get the Americans and the French on their feet a bit, you know, get them on their toes. So I think that they're definitely playing up the kind of possibility of, you know, inviting Wagner in, of pivoting towards uh, to, to Russia. Um, interestingly, you know, the Russian foreign ministry, their initial response was to, to call this a coup. Um, but again, if, if this turns into an international regional conflict, that could definitely change. So I think that the it's in it's in the junta's interest to kind of play up play the Wagner card, if you will. You know, they also would potentially have an interest in really inviting these guys in to serve as auxiliaries. Um, uh, either kind of doing what Mali has done, if if they decide to kind of abandon Bazoom's more um, calibrated counterinsurgency approach, then they could go the Mali Burkina route by you know inviting in Wagner and being like, hey help us commit a bunch of massacres against communities suspected of harboring terrorists, because we all know that goes so well. My hope would be that the Nigerian officers, the junta leaders, for you know whatever grievances they had about Bazoum and his policies and stuff, that they would kind of look at what happened in Mali and Burkina and, and look compare that to what's been happening in Niger and maybe say, okay, we don't we don't need Wagner just on the counterinsurgency or on the counterterrorism stuff, right? Um, that we don't maybe actually want them to be our principal kind of counterterrorism partner. But they might feel that they don't have many options if, uh, you know, one of two things happens. The first is the possibility of, of a serious ECOWAS invasion, which, you know, the challenge there is that the, um, you know, the the Nigerians themselves, right there, it's the junta is very vulnerable. I think that this really is a situation where like the war could go badly for everyone, except for, you know, the jihadists. Um, but you, the, the, the junta in Niger would be in need of external support if they really got, you know, a, a decent sized uh, intervention from Nigeria, plus some forces from, you know, a couple other countries. 
So Mali and, Mali and Burkina have pledged support for the junta in Niger. The Malian and Burkinabe armies, though, can like they can barely operate outside of their own capitals, right? They're, the countries are just falling to the jihadists to a large extent. So there's not that much that those that those militaries could offer. I think one thing they could offer, though, is you know Mali, where Wagner is already operating. You know the the, the shifting of Wagner forces from Mali into Niger. So that's one possible entryway uh, into into the country. The other would be if, you know, down the line, the, the U.S. and France, they really kind of cut, you know, there if there is a really acrimonious split and there's no more any no longer any security assistance, then that's where the Nigerians might feel like, OK, well, we're going to get something from Wagner. I think, you know, I've, I've been focusing in, in this response on the the Nigerian calculus, because that's what I think I have a better sense of. Um, the Wagner calculus, I think, is pretty clear, which is that they're eager to operate in Africa, right? They're eager to operate wherever they can. It's a question of capacity. I I don't you know I don't really track the Wagner group, so I'm not in a great place to say. Um, I have some some colleagues at the Hudson Institute who have done some very good work on this. Um, you know, one of them uh, was was very uh, I think accurate in his prediction of kind of how the Prigozhin mutiny was playing out. And so I think that you know when I've talked to him and others, they say, well, you know, Wagner really still has some capacity in Africa. So I think I'm, I'm inclined to to trust people like him, given his uh, pretty solid track record. Um, but yeah, I, that's probably where, where we're standing now. Fair enough, man. And I, I think this is just to, to check the box. So no listeners complain about us not talking about jihadis. But you know, yeah. it is really kind of a no shit Sherlock situation of like, yeah, they're going to you know, really benefit from a coup. So I yeah. don't necessarily feel we need to talk about that much. I think I think pretty much everyone understands the the threat and implication for the jihadis if this is a successful coup, and sort of this allows for you know a lessened French or and by extension U.S. footprint. You know, obviously Al Qaeda and the Islamic State are going to benefit from that. Um, yeah. But I, you know, I think we just you know sort of wrap it up here. And, you know. Do you have any final thoughts or any sort of final points you want to make regarding this? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think certainly it it will a lot of it will depend on kind of what policies the junta decides to utilize. I think that it is important not to kind of lose sense of the, you know, I mean, I know this this almost becomes a trite word talking about Africa, but like the the agency of the junta, because it really is to some extent up to them, like they. You could have a situation where you have a non-democratic military government that's still employing a kind of smarter counterinsurgency approach, especially when the source of the insecurity in the case of Niger is more an issue of spillover, you know, from kind of Nigeria and the Lake Chad stuff, and then kind of from Mali and Burkina in the West. So, you know, you could potentially have something that looks a bit closer to like what you have in Chad which is not a good government. It's not a representative one. And I think all the structural challenges are still there, right? So like Chad could implode at any point because it has this illegitimate government. I mean, they killed like 80 protesters last year in the Capitol. Um, they, you know, the the question of succession is going to be very fraught there. You have a history of presidential pal- palace coups there as well. But because Chad is also, most of the jihadist violence it's experiencing is, is spillover, less than Niger, um, but, you know, they, you know, they have also taken to some extent, I think, a more calibrated approach, whereas the fear, though, is that the the junta will for, you know, possibly a combination of kind of its own 
internal political reasons as well as its you know the the status of kind of its relationship with the west and russia these are going to feed off on each other right it's they're not happening in isolation the the us policy might influence the internal dynamics of the junta the internal dynamics of the junta will absolutely you know influence what decisions they make about where they're looking so i think that the fear is that if they go the route to mali and burkina and you know which has essentially been a route of like ethnic warfare if we're being honest right with the the government largely playing sides by just arming these militias and and committing these horrific massacres that's where i think you know that's the the absolute you know shoot yourself in the foot approach and and that's what the nigerians are very afraid of uh you know benin as well because they those those two countries i think northwestern nigeria and northern benin which are already you know, very fragile areas. And the case of Northern Benin is already experiencing a good bit of jihadist spillover. I think those two areas are the ones that, you know, Niger's destabilization, whatever the, the source, whether it's from a, a regional war or just a junta taking a really stupid approach to counterinsurgency, those regions are going to suffer the most. And that, that for me is, you know, uh, personally quite, quite concerning. All right, here we are with first generation jihad ending on yet another negative note. Seems to be a trend with you guys. James, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for providing a lot of light on an issue that is very dark for, for many of us. Caleb and I included, you know, we hesitate delving into the internal politics of Niger and the region because these are issues that an expert like you has to walk us through. We hope to get you back on soon and, and talk more. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks both. Thanks for the invitation. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Reminder, you can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one, but only if we earned it. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again soon.